You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we pause, and as we do so, Lord, we thank you for your presence which is here, and we invite you, Lord, to come into our hearts. Lord, speak to us, speak through me. May the message that you have intended for us to hear individually be the very message that our hearts are open to receive. Take the words that are spoken and apply them to each one of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two years of world history, if the world lasts five, ten more years, we hope it doesn't. But if it does, we'll look back and wonder in amazement in some ways the historical experience that the world passed through where we went through national lockdowns, state lockdowns, schools closed down, workplaces closed down, shops closed down, churches closed down, all of us at some point wearing masks. I remember a friend of mine calling me up in April, May 2020, and he said, it's gonna become normal to wear masks. And I was like, no way, I can't imagine that. We'll look back and be like, wow, we lived through that. And there were some terribly sad situations that came out from the COVID-19 pandemic. Most likely, we know someone who passed away or know of someone who passed away. A good friend of mine, his wife's mother passed away. And two weeks later, his wife's sister passed away. A double funeral on the same day. But there were some stories as well of hope and joy. One of them came out of England in April 2020, which is early on, because lockdown of the world happened like mid-March mid is when everything kind of ground to a halt. And in April of 2020, which is early on when we're still trying to get our heads around what was going on, you may have seen on the news here in America, but it was big on the news in England as well, this uh, gentleman, his name was Captain Tom Moore. And in England, we don't have healthcare like you have here. We have what we call the National Health Service, or we call it the NHS. It's paid for out of our taxes that we, obviously taxes we pay, and the tax goes to support the National Health Service. And we have a different healthcare system that you have here. It's free. My wife's having a baby soon. She'll go to the hospital, deliver the baby, walk out. We won't have to pay a penny. Praise the Lord. Amen. It has its pros and cons. But it's a big institution in England, the National Health Service. And he decided that he was going to fundraise for the National Health Service. And his goal was to fundraise £1,000, about $1,300, by walking 100 laps of his garden. He was 99 years old at the time. He was going to turn 100 in approximately uh, 30 days or 25 days. And by the time he reached his 100th birthday, he wanted to have completed 100 laps of his garden. His garden garden was 25 meters long, 100 laps, 99 years old with his, his mobility aid, and he set out to do it on April the 6th. By April the 10th, he had 1,000 pounds. So they upped the limit, 5,000. A few days later, he got 5,000, and he went to 10,000. 
But by now, the national media caught hold of the story, and, and, and maybe, you know, that they, the media knew that the nation needed a feel-good story or something like that. I don't know. But the media kind of took the story, and it just mushroomed. And not just the British media took it, then CNN and other people picked it up as well, and then it started to spread around the world, and, and the limit then went up to 500,000. He was able to raise, he ended up raising $45 million in the space of 25 days. Just by walking around his garden with his Zimmer frame. But not only did he raise $45 million, he, he got all these accolades and, and, and awards. He's not Captain Tom Moore. Well, he's passed away now. He died last year. But he's Captain Sir Tom Moore. Because on July the 20th, 2020, in the Queen's first appearance in public, this is July, country lockdown in March, her first public appearance, she had a special service with just him, tonight just him, at Windsor Castle, and he became Sir Tom Moore. He also released a, a hit single where he sang the, the famous song, You'll Never Walk Alone, with Michael Ball. And it reached number one, thus he became the oldest number one artist in British history, probably world history. Who else at 100 years old has a hit single <laughs> in the world? The point is though, he only sets out to walk across his garden a hundred times and have the humble goal of raising 1,000 pounds, $1,300. He never planned to become a national or a global celebrity. He never planned to raise $45 million. And if he had just raised 1,000 pounds or $1,300, he would have been very happy by his 100th birthday. He wouldn't have got to his 100th birthday feeling unfulfilled or unsatisfied or I didn't do what I wanted to accomplish. Thousand pound, I'm happy. But he got to his 100th birthday with 45 million fundraised in his name. The sermon title today is Faithful Greatness. Faithful Greatness. If you have your Bibles, please turn if you can and you will to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And there's many stories in the Bible that illustrate this. This morning, I'm going to take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, we have the story where Samuel goes to the home of Jesse. And he comes to the home of Jesse, and he's coming there on a mission. He's coming to the home of Jesse on a mission to, 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 to look for somebody. And we find there, we pick up in verse 4. At the end of the verse, it says, The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord and sanctify yourselves. Come unto me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. He's coming there to, to look and search for who's going to be the next king of Israel. And he comes there to Bethlehem, and Jesse comes, and he asks Jesse to call his sons. And Jesse calls his first son, and it says, and it came to pass, verse 6, that when they were come, he looked on Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Jesse picks out Eliab, and he presents Eliab to Samuel and says, this must be the Lord's anointed. You know, as human beings, we have a very poor track record of predicting who is going to be great in life. Very poor. 
very poor. Anyone who's a teacher will probably tell you multiple stories of students that they thought were going to make it in life and didn't, and students that they thought were a, a dead-end dropout who turned it around. Every teacher would have a list of names right now in their heads that are going through of those students that they thought would accomplish nothing, but whoa, we're just not that good at predicting greatness. And Jesse's like, here's Eliab, this is the man. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Samuel, no, nah, don't look on his countenance. Don't look on his height. Don't look on his stature. Because I have what? Refused him. For man sees not on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? Heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shaman pass by him, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this. And Jesse made seven of his sons to pass by Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Jesse's like, Okay, I'll start with the best. My favorite son. Parents aren't supposed to have favorites, amen. Eh, no, not him. Not the next one. Not the next. Seven sons. Now we come to verse 11. There's a key word in verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are here all thy children? Have I seen everyone? Because I know the Lord told me to come here to anoint somebody. Have I seen everybody? He's seen every son that Jesse thinks Samuel is worth to see. He's seen all the children that Jesse, in a sense, values for the purpose that he thinks Samuel has come here for. He's seen all of them. And so Samuel turns and he's like, are you sure this is it? And he said, there's one more. There remains yet the youngest. And depending on your translation, the King James says, and the new King James uses the word, but. He says, there is the youngest one. There is the youngest one. And I prefer the new King James translation because he says, there is the youngest one, but he's just looking after the sheep. There's the youngest one, but, 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 he's just looking after the sheep. Surely he's not the one you're looking for. And Samuel says, call him. Call him. I want to see that youngest one. I want to see that youngest one. Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so they send, and David comes, and as David comes, he comes before Samuel, and, and Samuel looks at him, and Samuel's like, hmm. This is the one, the eighth one, the one that his father didn't call, the one that his father didn't think was, in a sense, important enough to come to this gathering with the prophet himself. And as Samuel looks at him, he says, this is the one. Your dad got something drastically wrong in his analysis of his children. And you would say that a parent, a father, knows their children intimately, and yet in this instance, Jesse gets it wrong. He gets it wrong. He miscalculates the, the qualities of his children. And he says, that one is just looking after the sheep. God's looking for people today in his church, in his movement. People today who he can bestow responsibility upon. 
But in looking for those that he can bestow responsibility upon. In Chronicles it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are perfect towards him. He's looking. He's looking amongst the, 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 the rows and the seats here at camp meeting. He's looking amongst the, the, the trailers and the caravans at camp. He's looking amongst those who are here. I want to find someone whose heart is perfect towards me. Someone that I can entrust this responsibility with. As he looked among David's, sorry, David's brothers, he couldn't find any one of David's brothers, Eliab, Aminadab, and so on. But then he came to David and says, this one who's only looking after sheep. That his father actually just, well, go look after the sheep. That one. I'll take that one. We're not good at judging greatness. And here's someone that was happy to look after the sheep, and God said, I'll take him. How about with us today in our, in our spiritual responsibilities? What's the but in your experience? What's the but for you in your local church? But David's looking after the sheep. What's your but that you're just doing on the side that means very little to other people, but it's something great that God has in store for you? What is your but? Because sometimes, in the service of God, we can want to seek greatness before we've developed faithfulness. I'll talk for my pastoral colleagues, and I hope I don't offend any of them. There's pastors who watch the president walk by. They watch the executive secretary walk by, and they think in their hearts, I'd like that job. If they ever get it and they get the 300 emails a day, they regret it. <laughs> but they think, hmm, I think I could do a better job. There's church members that are only satisfied with certain positions in church. And if the nominating committee doesn't ask them to do that, I'm not returning the call. Don't you know I've been elder in this church for 15 years? Tell you a story, when I was pastoring, we had a, came into this church about 10 years ago, 14 years ago now, and we had a head elder at the time, good head elder, really got on well with him, had a really good handover when I became the pastor there, went to his house, he told me all about the church, we went on visits to visit, had a really good time with him as the head elder. I don't think it was the next year, because I think he had it again for one more year, but then the year after, the nominating committee of the church did not ask him to be head elder. They did not ask him to be elder. They asked him to be head deacon. Now, some of you already know in your minds that we have a ranking system in our church. That's not of God. But we have this ranking system that an elder is more important than a deacon. And some of you, I already heard, you go, mm -mm. you already said it. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So this guy goes from being head elder, and then they ask him to be head deacon. And as the pastor, the chair of the committee, now we actually divided up so everyone had, but they said, oh, pastor, you call him. So I called him up and he said, no problem. Happy to be head elder. He did have a little chuckle. He had a little chuckle. He said, no problem. Happy to serve the church in whatever way possible. Praise God. 
<laughs> then there was another person I had to call. This person had served, not just for two years, but before this guy was head elder, he was the head elder for the previous 20 or 30 years. Head or assistant, whatever, he was elder. And granted, he had done a great work for the church. When the church bought, bought, when the church bought their own building, he had fundraised for the church. He had, he had got, you know those old in-gathering tins? You guys remember that? He had got an in-gathering tin, and he'd gone to see the city, and he'd got a permit, not just for one week or two weeks, he got a permit to knock on doors in the city all year, 365 days a year. And he literally went round the city with his in-gathering tin, knocking on doors saying, hey, I'm from the Yardley Seventh-day Adventist Church, I'm raising money to buy our building, would you like to give? Raised thousands, just going door to door. He had, he had done a lot of work for the church. But he was now in his late 80s. He was in his late 80s. And the church didn't ask him to be an elder. They nominated him on the nominating committee to be not head deacon, but deacon. And I would think, you know, when you reach your older years, it's, it's time to mentor in the next generation. It's time to let someone else have leadership. And it's time to let someone else grow and make mistakes, and you're there to support them. I would think you'd want to have a little bit more rest in your later years. But so often we attach our personal value to positions and we find it hard to separate the two. And they asked me, again, so Pastor, <laughs> you're going to go call that one. I said, no, no, no. They said, no, no, Pastor, we ain't touching that one. You call it. So I went to see him in the, I was there. I said, Brother so-and-so, on behalf of the nominating committee, they've asked me to ask you if you'd be willing to serve the church in the next year as a deacon. He looks at me. Actually, I think we're shaking hands. He looks at me, and this is what he said. He just looked at me. He said, Pastor, learn the history of this church. And then he walked away. He said, learn the history of this church. What he was saying was, if you knew the history of this local congregation, if you knew where it had come from in the last 30, 40 years, if you knew the role I had played in this church, you would never come to me with that insult from the committee. That's what he was saying when he said, Pastor, learn the history of this church. I well knew the history. That's why no one else wanted to ask him, and I was the one lump with asking him. I well knew. Learn the history of this church. Walked away. Sad that someone who's asked to serve in a capacity that's outlined in the book of Acts has been an honorable position in church would say, that is beneath me because I am greater than that. Don't you look at me and see eldership material, not deacon material? We had one lady in our church and she was great and every time nominating committee would come, we would never choose her for anything. No joke. Deaconess, no. Community service, no. Whatever, just leave. Don't need to pick her. Why don't we need to pick sister so-and-so? The reason why we don't need to pick sister so-and-so for any responsibility is because she does it every week anyway. Every week she's out there visiting. She'd be like, Pastor, meet me on Wednesday. And I would just clear six hours in my schedule. 
would have no idea where I'm going. She said, Pastor, meet me Wednesday at my house at 10 o'clock. And then for the next seven hours, she had a whole list of people. Okay, we're going to do, 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 do. Just one by one by one by one by one by one by one. Next week, let's do the same. No deaconess, no elder, no community service, no nothing. Just passionate about the church and passionate about meeting the needs of people. And I don't need a position to do it. I'm just doing it because I'm a Christian. We need more people in church that are willing to serve because they're a Christian. Because they're called by God, because they've given their hearts to Him, as opposed to, I've got a position from the church. Because what happens when the church doesn't give you a position? You stop visiting? Shouldn't do. You stop caring for people because you no longer have a responsibility in the local congregation? Samuel calls David. And he says, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. God's not looking for people that just want to serve him because they can get something great. Seeking greatness. Seeking accolades. Seeking support. <laughs> I did a fundraising, oh, I've got to be careful, everything's live stream these days. I did a fundraising run once. And I tried to get someone in our church structure who was more significant and important than me to come and join the run. Because, you know, sometimes you just like to have some moral support from someone important. Say, so, hey, you want to come join the run? Fundraise for the young people. Nah, busy. And I looked at him and just shamelessly said this. What's the name of your union magazine here? Lake Union Herald. I just looked at him and shamelessly said, if you come, I'll get your picture on the front page of the Herald. I was joking. And he looked back at me and said, okay, I'll be there. I'll be there. He came. <laughs> it's not funny, but it is funny. God's looking for people that are faithful, who don't care about the greatness. But we've got a church full of people that want to be great without being faithful. The Reformation, when we go back to the Reformation, it's fascinating when you look at the history of the people in the Reformation. A town that's not too far from me called Lutterworth, England, it's about 45 minutes from my house, and I've been there many, many times, taken lots of people there to visit that church in the picture. Welcome to Lutterworth, the birthplace of John Wycliffe. Sorry, workplace of John Wycliffe. He died there. He was born elsewhere. And Sir Frank Whittle, he did something with jet engines. And there in the little town of Lutterworth, there's only a few thousand people who live there today. It was where John Wycliffe lives for the last, like, 10 years of his life. It was there in Lutterworth, England, where he finished his translation of the Bible into the English language. Now, we didn't translate the purer text that William Tyndale and, and, and later on they would translate into the King James Bible. He translated the Latin Vulgate, but still, it was better than a Latin Bible. It's why Ellen White calls him the morning star of the Reformation. He was a man of fortitude. He was a man of, of courage. He was a man of principle. Time and time again, they, they, they try to get him to, to change his mind or recant or repent, and, and he has some powerful quotations like, no, I refuse. He actually, like the Apostle John, was able to die a natural death. He was never martyred. He was never captured or, 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 or in any way, like, killed. He died a natural death. And when you look at the life of John Wycliffe as he pastored there in this church, 
He actually died in this church. He had a stroke in this church and passed away, and they carried him out, obviously, and buried him later on. He was buried near there, though if you know the story of John Wycliffe, you know that he doesn't re- his bones don't rest there anymore because he was dug up 30 years after his death, and the bones were burned and put into the river. He was. Very cool. But Great Controversy, page 81, says, like after reformers, Wycliffe did not at the opening of his work foresee where it would lead him. He did not set himself deliberately in opposition to Rome, but devotion to truth could not but bring him in conflict with falsehood. The more clearly he discerned the errors of the papacy, the more earnestly he presented the teaching of the Bible. She says he had no idea where it was going to take him. He had no idea, but he was just being faithful to his Bible. He was faithfully presenting the teachings of the Bible, and eventually it took him on a trajectory where he never intended to go on. He was faithful, but he was not seeking greatness. He wasn't expecting a whole chapter of his life to be included in the great controversy. He was not expecting us to call him the morning star of the Reformation. When he rises up in the resurrection, no doubt he'll be shocked and surprised as he looks back in, 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 in spiritual history to see the impact that he had on later reformers, the Reformation, and the Christian movement at large. He'd be like, wow, I lived in Lutterworth, England. But as his ashes were put into that stream, symbolically it had a greater and a wider meaning. They thought they were getting rid of him, but that little stream, the River Swift, it's not much of a river, it's about as wide as this pulpit, that River Swift flows into the River Avon, and the River Avon flows into the Bristol Channel, and the Bristol Channel into the Irish Sea, and the Irish Sea into the Atlantic Ocean, and symbolically, the impact of his life and the translation of the Bible symbolically would spread around the world just like the water into where his ashes were cast went. He was not a man seeking greatness, but he was a man seeking faithfulness. John Huss and Jerome in, in, in Czech Republic likewise. And then we have this man here. Maybe you've been here. Santa Scala, they call it. It's outside St. John's Lateran Church in Rome. This is the staircase, the tour guide will tell you. This is the staircase that Jesus ascended as he went up to meet Pilate. He went up this staircase, and then miraculously one night, the angel picked it up from Jerusalem and dropped it in Rome. I could be a tour guide, amen? That's what they believe. And so people come there and, and they queue up. You can see there's like a traffic jam to get on, on, on the steps. And, and they queue up there. And then as they get on the steps, they go from one step to the next on their knees, saying a prayer at every step. Because this is the staircase that Jesus ascended. What more spiritual experience can you have to say a prayer on every step? Martin Luther was here. It's probably the most authentic sight in Rome, this. Martin Luther was on this staircase when he heard the words, the just shall live by faith. Stands up, turns around, and walks down that staircase. Don't have to get to the top, because the just live by faith. Don't have to complete this staircase on my knees, because the just live by faith. And he made his way back to Wittenberg, Germany. His trip to Rome was at the age of 27. After that trip to Rome is when he wrote his 95 Theses, and his 95 Theses he wrote in this town here of Wittenberg, Germany. And that's the church where after he wrote his 95 theses, he went to the door of that church and he posted 
his 95 theses. Now, we often make this big hoo-ha about, he went to the door, he posted his 95 theses, and boom, the Reformation started. Well, he did. But I can assure you that when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, he never intended to start the Reformation. And there's a few reasons we, we can glean that from. Firstly, he posted his theses in Latin, not German, so he never intended it to be read by the general population. He only intended it to be read by the academic scholars in the university, and he only intended it for it to be to an academic debate between the scholars. If he wanted it to be read by all the German country population, he would have written it in German. He writes it in Latin. Just going to be a little debate amongst me and my mates at the university, and we're going to debate these points. But God had something bigger in store for him than just a debate amongst his academic colleagues at the university. And God said, no, that 95 Thesis is going to come down. It's going to be translated into German. And because the Gutenberg Press was invented about 100 years previous, now it's going to be printed. It's going to be mass distributed and it's going to start a revolution. But he never woke up that morning when he walked to the, the, the Wittenberg Castle Church as he posted it thinking, hey, 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 I'm about to start a new church now. I'm about to revolutionize Germany. Germany's going to break away from Rome. And then Scandinavia will become Lutheran. And then, and then, you know, huge chunks of the new world will be Lutheran because of the work that I have done. No, no, no. He just went and posted it. Being faithful to his conscience. Being faithful to his conscience. Ellen White says here in Great Controversy, page 143, it was not without a terrible struggle with himself that Luther decided upon a final separation from the church. It was about that time that he wrote, I feel more and more every day how difficult it is to lay aside the scruples which have imbibed me since childhood. Oh, how much pain it has caused me, though I had the scriptures on my side, to justify to myself that I should stand alone. I never intended. It's, it's, it's a terrible struggle, he says, to separate from Rome. I've been this way since childhood, but I must be true to the Scriptures and stand alone. And it was those convictions that led him to post his thesis. That's not the door he posted on. That's the door frame. The door was wooden. Now it's a brass door with the 95 theses etched into it. He would later go on to this place. Worms, or as we say in English, because we don't pronounce the V, we say W, we say worms. And there, not far from this spot, he stood at the diet of worms and gave those famous words where he etched the principle of Protestantism, which I would argue is the same principle of Adventism, where he says, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience, here's the point, my conscience is what? to the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, amen. Ellen White goes on to say that the council stood in amazement, speechless at what they had just seen and heard. He was again asked, will you retract? And he responded, may God be my helper, for I will retract nothing. Standing somewhere near this spot in 1521, he uttered those words. Martin Luther did not intend to start a church. He did not intend to be this great reformer that we had a 500th anniversary because of him. I'm seeking faithfulness. God is looking for people today who are seeking faithfulness and not greatness. 
One of my favorite stories as well, or favorite characters of Reformation, well, this is really later Reformation time period, comes from Oxford, England. And here in Oxford, this is Oxford University, and this is what we call, what is called Christ College in Oxford. Today, tourists flock from around the world to come to this prestigious university college. And there they come, and they visit the place where Harry Potter was filmed. Sad, really. The Harry Potter tour. Go see the Harry Potter staircase. But it was in this place where John Wesley and Charles Wesley were students, much more significant than Harry Potter, amen? Amen. It was in this room where they would eat their breakfast and their lunch and their dinner. Not a bad dining room, eh? (laughs) It just kind of makes you feel intelligent just sitting there. And it was here where Charles Wesley first started a Bible study. He had come to university, and like often happens with young people that go to university from Christian homes, he lost his way a little bit. Nothing crazy, but he lost his way a little bit, and he felt that he had gone from the principles his parents had instilled in him that he had had as a younger man, and he says, I need to do something. So he gathered a group of friends together. If you're at university and you're on your own and you're not quite sure, gather some friends together. If you haven't got friends at university, gather some friends on Zoom together or or do something. He gathered some friends together and they said, let's have a Bible study. And they started to have a Bible study every day. Campus Bible study. They were called different things by other people. They were called the Holy Club, the Bible Moth, the Sacramentarians. And they were also called the Methodists. And in this holy club, what did they do? They fasted every Wednesday and Friday until 3 p.m. They took communion once per week. That's what they were called the sacramentarians. They studied the Bible every day. They visited the sick and the imprisoned, and they lived a holy life. Just a club on campus. I know here in Michigan, you've got campus ministries. Amen? Support your campus ministries. It's a vital ministry. Some of the greatest movements in the world have come from the campuses of secular universities and at Christ College, Oxford University, Charles Wesley founded the Holy Club. He don't call it the Holy Club, but the people called that that. Uh, what they meant for Bible study, prayer, and self-examination. Started as a campus ministry in Oxford with the purpose of spiritual growth. They met every day, visited the sick, the imprisoned. They were called the Oxford Methodists in a local journal. They never chose the name Methodist. And they were chosen, they were called the Methodists because of the methodical way that they, A, studied the Bible, and B, went about their, it was a very routine life. Very methodical way. Initially, John Wesley traveled the country, he visited small groups. So what happened is John Wesley was a Church of England. He was Anglican, or I think you call it here, Episcopalian. John Wesley was, was Church of England, and he would travel the country, and there were just small groups around the country. Small groups. And he would visit these small groups, and eventually these small groups grew, and and they blossomed into something that eventually became its own denomination. But if he had asked Charles Wesley and John Wesley at Oxford University, what's your dream and goal in life, Charles? That's the Central Methodist Hall. It's right opposite Westminster Abbey, right there in the most pricey real estate in England. That building is worth billions. And it came from a campus Bible study because one young man just wanted to renew his commitment to God while he's at university. No idea it would take him where it took him, but it took him there. You know, it's interesting side of history that while the latter part of the 18th century, the 1700s, saw five revolutions across Europe, most notably the French Revolution. And revolutions, what happens in a revolution, especially the French Revolution? Who's revolting against who? It's the working class or the the poor revolting against the what? The rich. Because, hey, you've got all this money, there's no middle class and blah, blah, blah. They revolt against the rich and they, whatever. 
It's interesting that in England, the Methodist religion blossomed amongst the working classes, the northern cities of Manchester, Leeds, and Liverpool, and so on, where all the industrial heartlands of England were. That's where the Methodist church blossomed. And John Wesley would go there and talk to them about, about abstinence, about not having alcohol, and all these other things. And, and no credible historian will admit this because you can't put a finger on it. You can't prove it. But I personally believe that England was spared a bloody revolution because of John Wesley and Charles's revival. Because the revival was amongst the very people who would have had a revolution. While France is having a revolution, England's having a revival. The Methodist Church went around the world, became a great church. And then Adventism has strong roots in Methodism. Strong roots. A lot of the way we do church has Methodist roots and origins. John Wesley's the one who said, the world is my parish. Wherever I am in the world, there I will witness. Friends, with David, God was looking for a faithful man who didn't care about greatness. In our local churches, the congregation, the community needs people who are faithful, who don't care about accolade. They don't care if their name's in the union, herald, they don't care if their name is recognized by other people. They just want to be faithful to do service for God. Some of those who are faithful and do service for God end up doing something bigger. But most of those who end up doing service for God just continue doing service for God. Why? Because they never did it to do something bigger. They did it just to do it. Sometimes we have this warped mindset, if I'm humble, if I'm humble, let me be humble, I'm going to 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 be humble. God, are you looking? I'm going to be humble. God, are you looking? I'm being humble. God, God, look, I'm humble. I'm humble, please. I need something bigger. I'm, okay, I'll be humble for another year. Humble. Hum We're not humble so we get something bigger, amen? We're humble and faithful to be humble and faithful. David would have been happy looking after sheep the rest of his life. God saw different. But there were other faithful shepherds who looked after sheep the rest of their life, and that's fine with them. Let us seek faithfulness, not greatness. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, you know our hearts, and the heart of man is one that desires what we don't have all too often. It was Lucifer who wanted to ascend into the heights and sit on the throne, and, and that desire that Lucifer had is a desire that all of us struggle with in some capacity in our lives. Lord, may we surrender, may we die to self, and may you take away that desire for greatness or position and replace it with a desire for faithfulness and humility. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen.